Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 4, starting at verse 14 through chapter 5, verse 10. This section is called Jesus the Great High Priest. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our witnesses, our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. That is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Good morning. Well, a beautiful morning. Uh, baptisms are such a beautiful reminder of our daily call uh, to be baptized and to give ourselves over to the Lordship of Jesus. My name is Scott. Uh, if you don't know me, it's a privilege uh, to be a missionary of Spring Garden Church with Youth Unlimited and also a privilege to serve as one of your deacons. Um, I oversee property alongside Ben, so if you see anything that's wrong with the property, just talk to Ben anytime. That's great. Uh, I do want to say this morning, many of you have been praying faithfully for me over the past two years since I fractured my hip cycling. I'm now three months removed from a total hip replacement and am pain-free and so filled with gratitude for that and slowly regaining my strength and mobility, so thank you uh, for being with me and my family over many months. <laughs> Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, the worship we've already had through music and prayer and baptism and children's blessing. And so we just give you this time. I ask that you would uh, use me for your glory and your purposes for this community. Amen. 
Uh, as we dive into today's scripture, I would love for you to keep your Bible open or more likely your phone open uh, to Hebrews so we can keep reading and reflecting together. Now, today is about holding hands. Yes, holding hands. Now, what does holding hands mean to you? Uh, perhaps even right now, you're reaching over to your partner with a glint in your eye, giving their hand a little romantic squeeze. You might be imagining long walks on the beach, hand in hand with your spouse. Or maybe you're recalling a moment of grief as you held the hand of a loved one beside their hospital bed. Or maybe it's recalling those early days as you held the hand of, as a newborn baby held its hand around your pinky finger. Or maybe you sense a longing, a void for the gentle touch of another to hold your hand. Or you're an early childhood educator and every day you hold the hands of precious preschoolers as you gently guide them through their day. Holding hands. You know, I think the unknown author of Hebrews was writing to a group of people who needed someone to hold their hand. Ben and Abby and Sam have done a beautiful job walking us through the first few chapters of Hebrews. Now, we don't know much about these people other than they were very likely Jewish Christians, and they were experiencing some serious hardship. If we flip over to chapter 10 in verses 32 to 34, the author writes, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Now, when I read that, it sounds like this group of people had some pretty serious, bold faith. But it seems their early enthusiasm has begun to wane. Their expectations of who Jesus was and what he would do in their lives weren't lining up. How much longer could they hang on? And why should they when everything was so tough? So far in our journey through Hebrews, we've seen that Jesus, as Dr. Ben put it, is the greatest of all time, the greatest, most supreme revelation of God and who he is to us here amidst his creation, superior to angels, superior to Moses. And today we see another aspect of Jesus' superiority as our high priest. Now, this is actually a focus that extends all the way to chapter 10 of this letter to the Hebrews. But here today in chapter 4, starting in verse 14, we start with a therefore. Now, in our world where most of us barely read headlines, we might be tempted just to get to the point and start with the therefore. But if we're really listening, we want to know the full extent of what our author, what our teacher is trying to say. Why is he saying Therefore, now the good news is I'm only going to take you back one verse to verse 13. Let's read that together. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Nothing is hidden from God. The Greek here quite literally means we are naked and exposed before God. 
Now, on first reading, it reminds me of those nightmares where you're in some public place where it's work or school, you're hanging out at the mall with some friends, and you realize you have no clothes on. What a horrific embarrassment. You run from the scene for your very life and wish you could just melt away. Mercifully, you wake up with an elevated heart rate, a pit in your stomach, sweat on your brow, and you thank the Lord it was only a dream. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God knows everything about us, every little thing, the good, the bad, the ugly. He doesn't miss a thing. And so here's the truth. We are fully known. We are fully known. Our actions, our thoughts, our conversations, our heart motivations, our desires, our self-talk, our dreams, our hopes, all of this is before God in utter vulnerability. When some of us read this, we may feel like my daughter Claire must have felt during a trip to the grocery store with me and her older sister Ava several years ago. Now, Claire was probably four or five, long before the time I had perfected parenting. But for whatever reason, you know, I'm sure it was very valid. I was incredibly frustrated with my dear Claire. And so I barged into that grocery store, focused only on getting what I needed at as fast a pace as I could manage. Grabbed the basket, weaved past the grandmother in the shopping cart, sped into the produce aisle, and off I went. Only to discover that in two short minutes, I had lost Claire somewhere along the way. What a horrible feeling. But how must Claire have felt in that moment? I think she must have felt like her dad didn't want anything to do with her. Instead of holding her hand and guiding her through the maze of a grocery store, I had left her in my wake in tears, surrounded by concerned shoppers. Thankfully, I found her quickly with my proverbial tail between my legs, and I was quite embarrassed by my immaturity. But here's the point. When we think about being fully known by God, naked and exposed in every way imaginable, we might think to ourselves, like my precious Claire, God doesn't want anything to do with me. But is being fully known good news or bad news? Well, let's turn back to the text. Again, I'll start in verse 13. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Friends, allow me to suggest that it is the best possible news that we are fully known by God. Our sins, our redemptive qualities, our brokenness, our goodness, it is good news because we have a high priest in heaven who understands us completely, and his name is Jesus. Now, to understand just how good this news is, let's dive into this whole high priest thing. As I mentioned before, the topic of uh, being high priest is just beginning here in chapter 4, and it goes all the way into chapter 10, talking about Jesus as our great high priest. So I don't want to steal anyone's thunder in the weeks to come for whoever's preaching, 
But let's remember the author of Hebrews is writing to a Jewish audience of Jesus' followers. And the high priest had played a pivotal role in the religious life of the Jews for centuries. Now again, here's what the writer of Hebrews says in today's passage about that role, starting in chapter 5, verse 1. Let's read it together. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. So here's what we know. First, the high priest is from among the people and is appointed by God through his lineage as part of Aaron's family. Second, the high priest represents people in matters related to God. And this is no matter. It's no small matter. You see, it's a little bit like how our kids call adults by their first names these days. You know, it used to be Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so and Sir and Ma'am. And I'm not saying this change is bad, but it does speak to a casualness that typifies our age. I think we've made the same shift with God at times. Again, relating to God on a casual basis is a beautiful thing. But I might suggest perhaps we might lose the sense of God's holiness at times. Throughout Scripture, you see people respond to the prospect of God's presence with fear and trembling. God's holiness made him entirely other, entirely separate. Moses was so radiant when he met with God, the people were terrified and he had to wear a veil. When the prophet Isaiah sees God in a vision, he cries out, Woe to me, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips and have seen Yahweh, God Almighty. Even in the New Testament, Simon Peter, when he realizes who Jesus is, falls to his knees and proclaims, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. When we come before God, fully known, we realize the extent of the gulf between God and humanity. And it was the high priest who bridged this gap between God's holy otherness and humanity's sinfulness. And the text tells us the high priest bridged this gap by offering gifts and sacrifices for sins. Most importantly, it was the high priest alone who made these offerings on the Day of Atonement that happened once a year, where the high priest confessed all of the sins of the people, symbolically bestowing these sins upon a goat known as the scapegoat. You'll think about that word again the next time you use it. And sending this goat away into the desert. And the final thing this text tells us about the high priest is that the high priest is gentle to the people of Israel because he himself grapples with the same sins for which he is seeking forgiveness for Israel. So here we see in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 5, the author of Hebrews is describing the old covenant picture of a high priest and their role among the people, a pivotal role in bringing God and his people near to one another. But what does it mean for us today that Jesus is our high priest? How is this good news? 
Well, the author of Hebrews uses a beautiful writing device to mirror the verses of 1 to 4 and verses 5 to 10. So let's read verses 5 to 10 together. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So here we see there are both continuities and discontinuities in Jesus' role as our high priest. Just like the high priest of old, Jesus was appointed by God. And like the high priest of old, these verses speak intensely to Jesus' humanity. He pleaded, he cried, he learned. But there are some significant, very significant differences. Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, the writer of Hebrews does a deep dive into this in chapter 7. So let me simply say this. Jesus is our high priest forever. Unlike the high priest before him, Jesus is our high priest forever. And not only that, Jesus, rather than mediating between humanity and God with gifts and sacrifices, instead himself becomes the sacrifice once and for all. He is the sacrifice forever drawing us near to God the source of our eternal salvation. There's no more need for scapegoats and blood rituals and days of atonement. So what does this all mean? Well, when we think of ourselves fully known before God, everything laid bare, we can know without a shadow of a doubt that God is fully for us. He's not racing ahead of us in the grocery store in frustration or anger. He's right there with us drawing us near to Him through His Son. And so let us return to the text, because there's two exhortations, two invitations uh, from our teacher in Hebrews today. Let's read verse 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Two big invitations in a few small verses. The first, we have a great high priest, so let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. And the second invitation, well, because that high priest empathizes with us, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Instead of the high priest being the only one who could draw near to God, 
the throne room is now open to all of us. As one commentator put it, Jesus is our high priest, has achieved for us what Israel could never enjoy, immediate, full, and complete access to God with the freedom and the welcome to draw near to Him continually. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Well, it's always good to ask, well, what is the faith that we profess, right? And I think verse 9 is a pretty good summary. Jesus is the source of eternal salvation, the source of the best possible life forever, the source of knowing our Creator for all time and beyond, the source of living in freedom from our sin and brokenness for those who obey Him. Isn't this something you want to hold firmly onto? We may not be suffering the very real persecution of the audience of Hebrews, but let me assure you, if we don't hold on firmly, the world and its worries will pull us away from our great high priest. Now allow me another holding hands story. We might hear this image of holding firmly to our faith and feel like my nephew, Luke, did many years ago when I was visiting him in Ottawa. He's now a strapping six foot one, almost 16-year-old hockey juggernaut, but he was once a young, small boy who wanted to sing, swing between his mother, my sister-in-law, and me. You know how it works, two adults with a kid sandwiched between the kid holding the inside hands of the adults. Mari and I put our arms back, counted one, two, three, and Luke ran with all his little might so that we could swing him up as high as we could, except I lost my grip on Luke's hand. Instead of swinging gently back to the ground as he'd expected, I flung my dear nephew several feet in the air where his face met the asphalt in full force. Total uncle fail. Thankfully, he was fine. But perhaps when you hear, let us hold firmly to the face we profess, you say, like little Luke must have, I got to hold on tighter if this is going to work. And that's the temptation when we hear this invitation. The verb for hold firmly here is krateo, which refers to the grasping of a person. But get this, the verb is used 47 times in the New Testament, but whenever it is used in an encounter between Jesus and a person, it is Jesus who is grasping the hand of the other. In Mark 1, Simon's mother-in-law is sick in bed. Jesus grasps her hand and helps her up, completely healed. In Matthew 9 and Mark 5, Jesus walks into a room where a young girl is dead, grasps her hand, and she gets up, alive again. Jesus' grip on us is always tighter than our grip on Him. So let us hold firmly to the faith we profess knowing we are held even more firmly by our great high priest. And so we come to our second and final exhortation. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, with bold frankness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We can be confident that God's throne, God's 
character, God's presence, is one of grace because He has appointed His Son, Jesus Christ, to be our great high priest who sits in His presence for all eternity. This idea of confidence, of bold frankness, is is similar actually to the notion of free speech. We can be completely open to God whose desire is to bestow mercy and grace upon us and His desire is to give us timely help. Now, this begs the question, for as the writer of Hebrews states in verse 7 of chapter 5, didn't Jesus offer up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears? Did Jesus receive timely help in His time of need as He approached His impending death? I think the answer to these questions must shape our understanding of what this final invitation is from today's passage. When we think of receiving help, we often think of getting out of a tough situation. We call a friend up, hey, I'm in a bind, you got to get me out of this situation. But more often than not, our Heavenly Father's help is not out of the situation, but through the situation. You see, as the Hebrews writer describes Jesus' very real temptations, Philip Yancey writes about it as Jesus' temptations from Satan were about speeding up what was the necessary process to accomplish his mission. Satan tempted Jesus to bypass all the hard stuff and just get to the end game. But in chapter 5, verse 8, we read, Son though he was, Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Yes, God answered Jesus' prayer. God helped him through the most difficult calling ever placed upon a human being. God helped him to and through his death so that we too might get the help we need through the same path of obedience to Jesus Christ. It was just over 10 years ago I received a phone call from the chair of the board of Youth Unlimited inviting me to be the organization's next executive director. This had been a year-long selection process, and I think the board chair was a little bit surprised when I said, hey, can I have the weekend to pray about this? And as I paused in solitude that night, here's what I wrote. As I lifted the decision to accept the position of executive director to God, I saw Jesus and me walking side by side on a beach before the ocean, a scene of possibilities, open-endedness, Jesus and I were holding hands in the same way that men in Africa can walk hand in hand, not in awkwardness, but as a gesture of mutual love and care. I felt comfortable, confident, and hopeful. Then the scene shifted, still at the beach and the ocean, but I was being baptized. And not just baptized, but baptized by Jesus. This was the call to a new season, a call to death of self to take on the new man Jesus is molding me into. Friends, I can assure you, 10 years later, I am still becoming the new man Jesus desires me to be. But join me in coming again and again to God's throne of grace, where we find all that God has for us to get us through whatever we face. Remember, we are fully known. And this is great news because God is fully for us. 
and with our great high priest, Jesus, we can go through everything life throws at us with fullness of life, hand in hand with our beloved Lord. Amen.